We're in this series called Heavy with Hope. And uh, we've been traveling through the book of Mark. Uh, and this morning uh, is simply called In the Desert Places. And we're going to be talking about the desert places and looking at that more, not literally, we're not going to look at a whole bunch of different deserts around the world, but we're going to look and talk about uh, the desert places of life, uh, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. Uh, as I was thinking about this, I do remember my first ever desert experience as a kid, like experienced that desert experience, and I was um, about nine years old. We lived in Texas in a little town called Kaufman. It was a one-stop light town, and that was a big deal because before that it was just a stop sign, you know, and we had Dairy Queen, which was God's gift to humanity uh, there. Huh? And small town, any small town in Texas. And so in, from Kaufman, uh, my dad decided to take a job in Santa Cruz, California, which felt like a world away. All I'd ever known was Texas and, you know, playing out in the field down by the creek, you know, all those different things. I was a hick, okay? Uh, and so we make this move across country. And, and me and my brothers and my little sister, we're driving. We all loaded up in a van and we're driving across country. And I just had to feel for my dad. He's made this massive decision and he's driving and stuck with us, and we're all crying the whole way. I mean, just like, Dad, you're the worst. You know, all those things you say, and just, I mean, even my mom's like, I don't know why, you know. It's just like so bad. And he's like, okay. So he gets this bright idea. As we're driving through uh, Arizona, he's like, you know what? Let's stop and see the Grand Canyon. Now, if you've ever driven, what you know is the Grand Canyon isn't on the way. You have to go out of the way to get to the Grand Canyon, a couple hours uh, to get to the Grand Canyon, and then get back on to head your direction. And we've already traveled a long ways. And my dad has this brilliant, bright idea. We're going to see the Grand Canyon. I mean, this is one of the most magnificent things that America has to offer, is this beautiful, majestic canyon. And I remember we driving out of the way, and we get there, and we're all tired, we're all mad, and literally all four of us, or we get out of the car, we look at this grand, beautiful, majestic canyon, and literally, this is what came out of our mouth. It's a big hole in the ground. <laughs> and then got back in the car and drove. <laughs> my, and by that time, now my dad's going like, these dang kids, I ain't one boy. <laughs> and the reality is, is in the desert places of life. Even the most majestic and beautiful just seem like a big hole in the ground. Because life begins to fade of all its color and turns gray, doesn't it? And, and some of us walked into this room and you, you stepped in and you're hoping that God would show up and speak to you because you're in a desert place. It might be a desert place relationally where uh, maybe a relationship with that guy or that girl that you're hoping would turn into something did not. Or a relation place maybe with your, your wife and, or your husband. And, and it just seems like there's been a drought forever and the ground is so hard and you're not sure if it will ever return back to where it once was. And maybe it's with your kids. And maybe, maybe it's emotionally. Maybe emotionally right where you're at. 
and you, and you just feel like, oh, I'm just stuck. Maybe spiritually. And you just feel dry in your relationship with God. You feel like it's a desert wasteland. This morning, we want to talk about the desert places of life. In fact, Jesus is going to talk about it. And, and he's actually going to address some things that I, that I believe, hopefully, for if you're in that place, or the reality is, is one day you will be in that place, if not now, of some specific things that are, are going to be incredibly helpful for you in those moments. If you've got your Bibles, would you open them up to Mark chapter 8, verse 1. Context is Jesus is traveling. He's actually in uh, Gentile territory. He's literally in this area called the Decapolis. It's the ten cities. He just got done doing an incredible healing. Christina talked about it last week where he healed this man who was mute and, and deaf. And he ends up in a desert place. In fact, if you look at Jesus' life uh, and watch him, he, he ends up in these remote desert places. And that's the context for where we pick up the story and I believe what God wants to speak to us this morning. Verse 1, verse 8, uh, chapter 8. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion. And just, again, we've circled this over and over as we've traveled through the book of Mark, but just circle that word compassion. When Jesus sees the need of humanity, his first response is one of compassion. And remember that word is phlegizomai. It is a deep feeling that moves you to action. That is God's first response to the hurt and need of this world is one of compassion. I have compassion for these people, for they've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote or literally desert place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Come on, Jesus. This, we, we don't have any Costco's close by, okay? And we, we couldn't even feed them if we could get to a Costco. And he looks at him and says, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks for them also. And he told the disciples to distribute them. I love this. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces and were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got in the boat with the disciples and went to the region of Dalmutha. Now, if you're feeling like this is a little bit of deja vu, if you've been traveling with us as we go through the gospel market, it kind of is. A few chapters earlier, we saw Jesus feeding how many? Anybody help me out? 5,000, right. Now, let me tell you a couple different, so he feeds large mass quantities of people twice. He feeds the 5,000, that's in Jewish territory. He feeds the 4,000, that's in Gentile 
territory. I, I love this. The first was um, a one-day seminar. You know, the people show up to him, and it's a one-day seminar, and the disciples are kind of like trying to get Jesus, hey, we want to hang out with you. Send the people away. And this is a three-day conference. You know, the, these people have been hanging out with Jesus for three days. It's just an incredible thought. Uh, and we'll hit it a little bit later, but it's been one that's been kind of rocking me, is these people, you know where Jesus was? He was in the desert place. And for them, they would rather be in the desert place with Jesus than anywhere else. Mm, I love that thought. I wonder how much of me do I rather choose my own comfort than simply be with God wherever he is is three-day conference in the desert place no food but jesus is there and that's all they need now if you noticed there's a number remember how many baskets were picked up in the first feeding the feeding of the five thousand? Twelve. yeah man some of you guys are awake this morning thank you very much um, 12 baskets, and, and symbolically that represents the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and this is a picture of saying that, that as God has come, he's come for the whole people of Israel. Now, how many, how many baskets do they pick up here? Seven. Now, what, what you may not know, because I didn't know until this week, uh, because I always thought, okay, seven, I've kind of, you know, you've heard seven's the perfect number, God's perfect number. Seven... It was a symbolic number in that day for the, just all Gentile people. In fact, this land or this area was known as the land of seven because there are seven major Gentile nations. And so very uh, strategically, Marx writes this, and this happens, is that there's seven baskets picked up saying that, that God has come just not uh, for just Jewish people, but he's come for all people. And that his arms are open wide to every person on the planet. The first desert scene we see is one of people with Jesus in the desert. Now, now the next scene, if you're the original audience, you would have known that this would be connected to the desert motif here. Uh, because the original audience would, would understand the Jewish history and immediately when we see Jesus making uh, uh, food in the desert, it brings back an Old Testament picture. Uh, the Old Testament uh, story is when the Israelites were wandering in the desert and they had no food and God miraculously provided for them with, anybody know what it was? Manna, that's right, manna. And, and so God supplies for them manna in the wilderness, in the desert, in the midst of their moment as they're wandering and walking. And then there is this phrase of where, and we'll see in this next line, about how the people of that generation responded to God's provision. Now, verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. That word came is a military language to come up against and fight. And the question it can, is also translated to bicker, challenge, or argue. So this wasn't just kind of showing up to Jesus. They're coming like, you know, 
getting ready for a fight. You ever, only, only boys maybe know this. Like, boys know this because we did this, like, in high school. It's like, you're, like, walking to a fight, and you're getting pumped the whole way, you know? And so you're like, all right, we're going to get them. Yeah, we're going to go get them. Yeah, no, we're getting, you know. And, and as, as you're going, you get more pumped. And so these guys are on their way to challenge Jesus. And literally, here it says, to test him. This is alluding back to that Exodus story of a generation who, where God provided for them, they tested him, and they complained, and they bickered, and they, were, uh, they said, man, why did God lead us out into the wilderness? It was better in Egypt. It was better in slavery. We were fed better, and they tested God. They tested him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. Let me unpack this real quick, this sign from heaven, because it wasn't just like, hey, Jesus, would you do a miraculous sign? It wasn't just like, hey, you know what? We, we would love to see one more magic trick from you. You've done some cool stuff, but, but maybe we weren't there when you did it. And so we want to know this. A sign uh, in the Old Testament was a public uh, event that certified or confirmed a disputed prophecy or, or a disputed claim. They're saying, we don't believe you. Show us. You better show off because we don't believe you're really who you say you are. Now, 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 a sign from heaven. A sign from heaven, they were, what they were asking for was an apocalyptic phenomenon which embodied or signaled the onset of aid or comfort for God's elect and the wrath of God was expected to be let loose against his enemies and those who threaten his people. When they're coming to Jesus and saying, hey, show us a sign from heaven, they're going, okay, you're the Messiah? Yeah? You think you're the Messiah? Then you know what? You show off God's power. We want to see something miraculous happen in the heavens and that he would smote all people. Whoa. Intense. I love Jesus' response. Look at what he says. He sighed deeply. How long have I been with you? How long have we gone through this? How many things, how many times, how many people do I have to feed? How many deaf have to hear? How many blind have to see? And you still miss it. And said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Desert place number one, Jesus is in the wilderness. Desert place number two, Jesus is on Jewish territory. I have it broken down so you can kind of compare and contrast here. The location, Gentile territory, the area, the Decapolis. Location, a desert place number two, Jewish territory, a city. The audience, primarily pagan Gentiles in desert place number one. All the, quote, wrong people. All the people whom the, in desert place number two, they said should be eradicated. And Jesus is with them. Audience of the desert place number two, Jewish religious leaders. Quote, all the right people. All the people that looked right, played the right part, everything externally looked right. You see, 
the most dangerous place in the world is, is not to be far from God. The most dangerous place to be in the world is to be far from God, but think you're close to him. That is where the religious leaders were at. The posture of those far from God, desert place number one, were one of learners. I don't know if that's a, a great word. You, I, I almost put lovers, you know, because they so wanted to be with Jesus, but I thought you might think that strange. But they just wanted to be with him. Wherever Jesus was, they just want to be with him, even if that means being in the desert. Posture. Posture of the Jewish leaders was one of unbelief. Now, let me talk just real briefly about the difference between unbelief and doubt. See, they are not the same. Doubt is a companion of faith. Doubt and faith actually go hand in hand. Unbelief opposes faith. Doubt is part of the process. Unbelief is is when you're in stubborn opposition to God. Doubt is honest searching for the truth. See, some of you, I think, maybe showed up and you're in the desert of doubting. And it frightens you. And maybe you grew up in the church and then you began to question. Maybe you had a professor that said something and you're wrestling and, and, and you're wondering, where is God? I, I remember my probably most critical time of doubting came not in high school, not early years of college, but I was newly married studying to be a pastor. It was one of the most scariest times that I can remember simply because here's this beautiful, amazing woman who literally just married me, thinks I'm this incredible, you know, godly man. She would soon find out that was wrong. Uh, (laughs) And here I am studying to lead people to God, and all of a sudden I began to wrestle with the question, is Jesus really the only way? I mean, really, is there a God? And it's what some theologians call the dark night of the soul. And maybe you're there. Where you wrestle and you struggle. And here's the thing that I didn't know because, because for me, I grew up in a Christian home and, and then I was studying to be a pastor. No one ever gave me permission to question. No one ever gave me permission to doubt. No one ever told me that's part of the process. That is part of the wrestling of your faith. And so it scared me and so I suffered silently. I wouldn't tell anyone. And the whole time, there's this internal war that my wife doesn't even know that I wrestled with God and I pleaded and I'm like, God, where are you? And if you're real, because honestly, I, I would never be a pastor if I knew I was perpetuating a lie. So I'm like, well, what am I going to do? And what is my wife going to think? I remember one day, I was at the end of months and months of wrestling with God. I remember one day going, God, okay, if you're real, you need to show up because I'm ready to walk away. And I, I just remember so powerfully just 
I don't suggest doing this all the time, but God just shows up in the way we need him in those moments. And, and I just literally said, God, okay, I was at a Seattle's Best in downtown Chicago, and I just took my Bible. God, if you show up, if you're real, show up. And I opened my Bible, and for the first time in months and months, the words left off the page. And I'm like, wow. And I had a life-changing encounter with the God of the universe. And then as I walked back, I, the president of our school was a guy named Dr. Joe Stoll. He's one of my heroes. And it was over a break, and there shouldn't be anybody around. I just decided, is he in his office? And he, he's a really busy guy. And I go up to the office, and he's there, and he welcomes me in. And I just begin to... First person I told about this whole wrestling season and just cried. And he, you know, he was actually signing one of his books, The Trouble with Jesus. And he handed me that. And, and I just remember that conversation as God used it so powerfully in my life. And some of you are in the desert of doubt. And I just encourage you, what came out of that time for me is that I have a God big enough for my greatest doubt, my greatest fear, and my biggest questions. And so, do not run and do not fear. He will show up the way you need him most. The Pharisees, their posture was one of unbelief, antagonism, doesn't matter what Jesus did, they were going to oppose him vehemently. The desert place, the request of the Gentiles in that territory, there was none recorded. We don't know. We talked about it already, the request for a sign. Dr. Gilbert Bilzekian wrote this, the kind of Messiah they want will never come. They are determined to find a compliant superman who is endowed with heavenly power and will fulfill their own earthly program. This group thought they could dictate to God the conditions under which they will or will not believe. And sadly, I believe that's what we do in the church all the time. The response, Jesus, in the desert place, number one, was one of compassion. The response, Jesus, in the desert place, number two, was of clarity. No sign. And you know what's scary? You know what's so scary? And I, I pray for those that are... are who of us, and you got to have an honest assessment, i got to have an honest assessment of those of us who really think we're close with God. They thought they were doing what was right. They confronted Jesus, and in the midst of it, not only did, was Jesus clear, but he left. He got in a boat and went back to the other side. Now, let's talk just a little bit about the desert place. We have two pictures. In fact, I think there's two things that are unpacked here about, about how we find ourselves in a desert place. In uh, the first, the desert place, they're in the desert place because of circumstances in their life. And some in this room, you're in a desert place because of the circumstances in your life. It's a health issue. The economy tanked. 
You were cheated on, betrayed, job. And there's circumstances that are outside of your control that are at work. And for some, that's where you're at. I would encourage you in those moments, Psalm 63 is a powerful, powerful passage. It says, in a dry and weary land where there is no water, my soul clings to you. And if you find yourself in the desert place of circumstance, desert place of a, of a kid that wandered off, the desert place of a health issue you can't resolve, of a loved one, circumstance says cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. And, and here's what is, happens is we often overestimate our ability in the desert place and underestimate God's ability. Go, okay, I realize I, I'm in a desert place. I can't, but he can. But some, some are in a desert place because of choices in their life. And this is harder. This, this, this is a little bit of a wake-up call. Some, are, some of you are experiencing a desert place in your life because of choices you have made. And, and here's what I get from people, too. I hear this, and I hear these where this is going, and then I can't believe God would. I'm like, well, hang on a second. You're living in every way against what God has called your life to be, and then you blame him for the reality of experiencing the consequences of that. Hang on a bit. We can't blame God. At some point, you got to own up to your choices and your decisions. Instead of, going, instead of blaming God, go, you know what? You, you know why that relationship fell apart? Because I was a jerk. Because I was selfish. See, it's interesting. Health issue might be a circumstance. It might be a choice. And you made some bad choices. Some of us are in the desert place because of choices. For some of you this morning, you walked in and you're longing for God to show up in your life and you're in the desert place of spirituality and yet the reality is, is until you repent, you will not experience God the way you long. You need to go, God, I own it. I own it. Listen. Repent simply means to realize that you're going the wrong direction and stop and turn around. That's all it means. And in your life, where is it? Where are you experiencing desert places because of choices that you've made? desert place. Some are experiencing because of circumstance, others because of choice. Now, now, the desert place, by the way, is oftentimes a place of preparation. Now, look at this back through the, uh, the lens. If you look back at Moses, and you know what he did? He led the people of Israel out of bondage into freedom, and God had them in a desert place for 40 years. 
Some are going like, man, this year is so long. Try 40. David was told he was going to be the king of Israel. And then he was chased and he was assaulted and lived in lonely places for years. Already being told he was going to be king. Now, Jesus... Jesus lived, by the way, 30 years in obscurity, knowing he was the Son of God. And before he stepped onto the planet or the face of time history to instigate or initiate his purpose here, then he had 40 days in the desert. I love what it says in Luke chapter 4. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was, what's that say? Led, led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Some of you are in the wilderness on purpose, and you're not outside of God's will. Some of you are there, and you're in a place of preparation. I just got to tell you, what God wants to do through you, he says to begin and do something in you, and the place of preparation often for us is the desert place. That's where he gets our attention. That's where he develops the core values in of us, where we realize he and he alone will satisfy for you to step into what he has planned. But some experience the desert place as a place of correction, a place of refinement, a place of, okay, you know what, those choices, and God in his love says, I'm not going to leave you there. I love you too much. Just like a, a loving father won't let his son or daughter keep going down that path, lovingly puts uh, things in the path and brings about pain so that you experience his very best. Hebrews 12 says this, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as sons and daughters. For some, you're in a place of correction and you just need to go, okay, you know what? By the way, it's not because God is down on you, it's because he loves you so much. He loves you so much, he won't leave you there. It was, it was funny. I had the incredible joy to get to talk at um, Del Mar three times to high school students in their sociology class. And, and this young girl came up afterwards, and she was like, you know what, if God really loved me, you know, then why do, wouldn't he just accept me as I am? I said, Okay. So you think it's okay for me to just accept my daughter, you know, my daughter at four was the cutest little liar in the world? Just accept her as she is. Well, that's who she is. No. Why? Because ultimately, if she develops that, that will destroy her. And so as a loving dad, bring consequences into her life to help her know that will not be the best way of life. You have a God that loves you. He's not down on you. Finally, in the desert place, God meets us as we need him most. It was a side point we made a couple weeks ago. Not as we want him most. We cannot demand from God a sign... uh, 
a sign. And here's what I'd say this morning. God, God brought you here because he longs to meet with you. And he may not meet with you in the way you expect. He may not meet with you in the way you long for. He, will, he may not meet with you in your time frame and the way you have it all figured out, but he longs to meet you as you most need him. And for those of us as followers of Jesus, we must then just simply cling and trust. He will show up in just the right way at the right time even if it takes three days for him to make some bread. Um, I told this story a few months ago, but it's one that fits here well, and we'll close. I was in uh, Carmel for a wedding in September, and it was awesome, and we end, my wife and I ended up having three days uh, together in a hotel, and it was killer. Uh, and on one of those days there, we wanted to find a coffee shop for me to work on, and she was going to go with some friends to go, you know, garage selling and all that kind of stuff that she loves to do. So we get up and walk, and I've never been to Carmel, so I don't know the area, and so we go to one coffee shop, and, and that coffee shop wasn't cool enough, if I'm honest, you know, just like if I'm going to sit and hang out, I want the vibe to be great, so we literally got a cup of coffee there, and, and then we was like, okay, let's go somewhere else, so then we go to an, another coffee shop and looked at it, and we're like, yeah, no, not really, you know, we grew up in Santa Cruz, we're coffee snobs, and so then we go to another coffee shop, and still wasn't feeling, finally the fourth coffee shop, we walk in and go, okay, I, I could be here for a few hours. I like this place, but it was packed. And every table was a small little place was full, except for the big table that had like nine, you know, chairs around it. And I'm feeling kind of bad, but I needed a place to work. So I sat up there, but it almost looked like this is my table, you know, and no one was going to sit at this big table and I'm working. So I'm feeling this pressure of everyone who walks in behind because there's no other seats. I want to make sure, hey, you can sit at my table. I own it, but you can sit at my table. Thank you very much. And so I see this one couple walk in, at least I thought they were a couple. And, and I saw they were about to walk out. And I said, hey, would you like to sit at my table? Uh, and they look at each other. Well, sure. And he goes up and to get coffee for them. She sees that I have a Bible on. She says, oh, uh, are you a Christian? I said, yes, I am. Are you? And she said, well, it's kind of complicated, but I, I kind of am. I said, okay, very much. And she goes, and then the guy comes back, and so that ends our talk there. And so they begin to talk, and I realize they're not a couple. He's her financial planner, and this is a business conversation, and it's actually a, a time when he's going to be let go um, and so I'm like, okay, I need to put on the earplugs, I, you know, headphones. I don't want to listen in, but I kind of do, you know. <laughs> and so, like, this is, like, he was a financial planner for us. He was doing a terrible job, as I could assess from my vantage point. <laughs> and you could tell, man, this woman was in a lot of pain. And, and I felt like the Lord, as he got up to leave, was saying, Ryan, you need to talk with her. I'm like, I, yeah, I'm kind of busy, God. I'm trying to prepare a message for Sunday. I, and honestly, I don't want to talk to anyone. I, I'm, I'm not real a talkative person. I just talk up front. And, and so I go get a cup of coffee, and I'm like, okay. And so I just sit down, and I go, how are you? Okay. How are you? 
pretty good. <laughs> what do you do? Oh, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I, and I said, I live in um, San Jose, pastor in San Jose, but for whatever reason, I said, but I grew up in Santa Cruz. And her eyes kind of lit up in that moment, said, Santa Cruz, yeah. When you were in Santa Cruz, did you ever go to Chip Ingram's church? <laughs> I said, well, as a matter of fact, um, he's my dad. And like her eyes lit up. She was like, oh my gosh, as if I was royalty, you know? It's like, and sometimes this happens. I know we're, we're, we know each other, but every once in a while, people whose lives have been impacted by my dad, they're like, they, they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm sitting at the same table as you. This is amazing, you know? I'm like, well, you're welcome. It's my, um. But in that moment, all of a sudden, the floodgates opened up and she just began to pour out her life story. She began to tell me of how she was going through a messy divorce and how life was so hard and, and talk about her pain and her struggle. And she would share, you know, the only, only uh, thing that got me through many days was I'd listen to your dad at 7 a.m. And, and it was the one thing that I could count on that, that just began to get me through and as she talked and she shared and she shared honestly, she's like, you know, through this whole mess, I lost the home, lost this, and I've even contemplated suicide. And, and God just felt, I just felt like he was telling me to share something really specific to her. And, and the words that kept coming to mind as I listened to her story was I just wanted to tell her, and I said, you know what? I just feel like God's telling me to tell you this, that, that all is not lost. I know it feels like you're in a desert place and there's no hope, but all is not lost. There's still hope. God has not left you. And then I, I couldn't help myself, but I said, do you know to the length God went to share that with you? He sent me to four coffee shops. <laughs> packed this place out so that there would be a communal table. Sent Chip Ingram's son, which doesn't mean much, but it meant the world to her. To share with you all is not lost. There's still hope. God has not left you. And in the desert place, God will meet you as you need him most. Would you cling to him?